Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Kaylee Hanson-Long, National Communications Director for Narrow Pro-Choice America. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. We're glad to have you. So first off, what is NARAL? So NARAL Pro-Choice America is the largest and oldest advocacy organization for reproductive freedom in the country. We are a membership organization made up of about 1.2 million member activists from across the country fighting for reproductive freedom in our backyards, in Washington, and everywhere in between. So we have been, you know, working hard since before Roe versus Wade was established, actually. And of course, in the last year, have had to rededicate and dig in like never before, given a number of the attacks coming our way on the issues that we care so much about. Um, and we do it joyfully and, and strongly, and we are so happy to continue that work in 2018 as well. So could you give us some examples of what you've been doing recently to fight for reproductive rights? Yeah, absolutely. As you all probably know, listening to the podcast, and as I'm sure you know, Jordan, you know, the ways that the reproductive freedom have been under attack, especially in 2017, but really for the better part of the last decade, have been unprecedented, truthfully, and broad in scope. What we have seen is, you know, reproductive freedom coming under attack in the tax bill most recently that Republicans are trying to pass, um, you know, by redefining what life, what when life begins in the tax code. Um, we have seen attacks, you know, at, in state bills that have had the impact of closing abortion clinics all across the country. And then, of course, in the different budgeting mechanisms that you'll see from the president's desk. So, you know, lowering funding for uh, comprehensive sex education, for example. Um, so what we have been doing is essentially fighting back against a lot of these things, and it's been a lot of resisting, um, you know, and making sure that a lot of the, the, the attacks that we see coming down the pike never actually are realized. Um, you know, it's been a really tough 10 years or so on that front as this anti-choice movement has gotten stronger and better funded, and they're quite strategic. Um, but there's been a lot we've been doing that's proactive as well. Um, and, you know, in the last year, we have introduced and passed, in some cases, different bills to protect birth control access, for example, making sure that birth control access is actually not only preserved, but in some cases even expanded. We have helped pass state legislation that codifies Roe into law in different states across the country, making sure that whatever attacks we may see coming from the Supreme Court, that certain states will definitely have Roe as law of the land, putting up stronger protections for a woman's right to choose in those areas. So there's a lot that we're doing. And of course, what this all intersects with is the electoral politics that we engage with and making sure that we are lifting up real champions for reproductive freedom, whether that's a state representative or a presidential candidate, making sure that you know folks across the country understand the importance of electing these champions to higher office so that our rights can be protected, uh, you know, our pocketbooks are preserved, you know, women's rights are protected as human rights as they should be. So you mentioned state bills, and currently Republicans control the majority of state legislative chambers, the majority of governorships, the majority in both the House and the Senate, and of course the presidency. And even though congressional Republicans have struggled to pass legislation, as you mentioned, state legislatures have been incredibly effective in restricting reproductive freedom. Could you tell us about the work you do to combat 
this assault on a state level? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it, you know, it all starts with making sure that, you know, that there is support behind real champions for women's rights, behind real champions for reproductive freedom. And that means investing in state level politics to ensure then that those exact reproductive freedom champions are then uh, becoming state representatives, state senators, et cetera, so that they can then in turn introduce really strong bills to protect a woman's right to choose an abortion access. Um, so it, it all really comes down to that. But what we also are doing is, you know, supporting those real champions um, in their work when they introduce those bills by sending out our, what I like to call our army of um, member activists, the people who organize and mobilize on the ground to go knock on doors and let pe- let the public know, let different cities and states know, you know, just how important that particular piece of legislation is, for example, for a woman's right to choose in that state. That is something that we did in Nevada, for example. Um, Nevada, as you may know, is a purple state. This is a state that, you know, is has never been solidly Democratic or solidly Republican in the last couple of years. The fact that it is purple doesn't actually change the fact that it is definitely pro-choice, though the state legislators and the representatives were not reflecting that position in their governing. And so what we ended up doing is is basically putting in work and putting in effort to eventually flip chambers in Nevada and getting a bill on the desk of the of the Republican governor to sign that actually protected and expanded birth control access. And that was done in partnership with so many amazing allies on the ground. Um, and a lot of new volunteers, you know, who make up this army of mobilizers and, or, and organizers who saw what was going on in their state and really what was going on in the country and said, hey, I want to make a difference. And so they signed up with NARAL. A lot of them hopped on a bus. We organized, you know, these big feminist road trips from all across the state, go, state excuse me, going into Reno, then to advocate for these policies that advance women's reproductive freedom. So that's a small example of what we do um, and what we have done to see some success here in the new Trump era. And we're excited to you know, do more of that in 2018 and beyond. So with reproductive rights friendly Democrats largely locked out of power on both state and federal levels, reproductive rights advocates have largely looked to the courts for help. But the courts are currently being wildly reshaped by Donald Trump and Senate Republicans who are placing far-right extremists on the bench for lifetime appointments. What are advocates supposed to do as the courts become increasingly conservative and hostile to reproductive rights? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I'm really happy you raised it because this is an issue that I think gets far too little attention out of all of the different fights that you know, we as advocates uh, look at in a given day. And, you know, it, it's assumed, of course, that, you know, oh, well, the courts, you know, these are people who are fair and just and, you know, the court system will will be fair and just. But, of course, remember the people who are in charge of putting the judges where they are. And now the person in charge of that right now is Donald Trump. And he would love nothing more than to reshape the courts in his image for the better part of a generation and, you know, generations to come, if you honestly and so, you know, while so many people think about, oh, you know, Donald Trump is in the White House right now. He'll be there for four or eight years. How can I ever possibly endure this if that's your politics? The thing that's even more important to remember is the damage that he can do will last for, you know, the better part of 50 years or so if he has his way by putting these different judicial nominees in, you know, on the bench at different different parts of the country. That this is an area that needs a lot more attention because, of course, the you know the courts end up being the backstop for a lot of the very laws that we're talking about, a lot of the situations that we're facing. Thinking about 
what you can do, honestly, to raise the alarm on this. You know, I think that folks, you know, advocates who are, you know, supportive of pro-choice progressive values um, really need to speak up, you know, sign petitions, make your voices heard. Frankly, educate your communities about, you know, just what a big problem this is so, so that we can rally others around this very issue that's for so long has just kind of gone under the radar. You know, for example, there was a there was a nominee who was recently confirmed named John Bush. John Bush was somebody who actually had a secret anonymous blog, basically opining on issues of reproductive freedom, on LGBT rights, on the Affordable Care Act, and you know, making statements that are so inconsistent with who a judge should be and, and the fair the fair values that a judge needs to bring to the courts, that person was still confirmed. So it's also important not only to educate your community, but then hold your senators accountable. Ask, you know, who, why are you voting for this person? Are you going to vote for this person to confirm them? You know, and if you do, you know, I will, you know, withhold my vote. I will withhold my support from you. So these are things that folks really need to pay attention to. And if folks want to learn more, they should definitely visit our website, prochoiceamerica.org, where we have a whole list of the different lower court nominees that are in the pipeline right now and their records on reproductive freedom. I'm glad you mentioned withholding your vote. There's been a lot of enthusiasm for retaking the House in 2018, but there's also been, among some groups, a bit of an indiscriminate approach to Democrats. And I think that's problematic in that I personally would not vote for a Democrat who's anti-LGBT, who's anti-reproductive freedom. Do you get involved in primaries? For example, Marie Newman is primarying conservative Democrat Dan Lipinski in Illinois, largely running against his opposition to reproductive rights. Is that the kind of race you would get engaged with? That's exactly the kind of race we, we get engaged with. And in fact, we were one of the first organizations to endorse Marie Newman this time around. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that people have to look at candidates and people have to look at elected officials and, you know, look a little bit beyond the party sometime to figure out, you know, if reproductive freedom is the number one thing that you vote on, it's something that you really want to advance, you know, where does that person stand? Really educating yourself. And unfortunately, Dan Lipinski is someone who has not uh, been on the side of reproductive freedom throughout his career and has voted against a woman's right to choose in reproductive freedom seemingly every chance he gets. So that is why we were so proud to endorse Marie Newman, um, who is someone who's been a champion for reproductive freedom, who has pledged her support for our issues um, should she be elected. And we're really excited to, to be behind her. We endorsed her along with a number of other progressive groups um, who, you know, made endorsements for similar reasons, you know, recognizing that this was a Democrat who really wasn't doing right by his constituents with the positions he was taking. So we're really excited to be involved in that race. Um, you know, we really think Marie is a great candidate, and we're so excited for the potential of what she could do for her constituents or her potential constituents. Um, and we're really excited about her. So what is your relationship to the Democratic Party? Of course, you have people speaking at the DNC, but also with these kind of primary challenges, the Democratic Party as an institution tends not to want outsiders. How closely are you involved with individual campaigns and the party? The Democratic Party is, you know, is aligned with us on in so many ways. Um, but of course, the thing to remember is that NARAL Pro-Choice America is an advocacy organization. 
Um, you know, we fight for candidates and people and causes that advance reproductive freedom. You know, if there were strong pro-choice Republicans, uh, you know, we would fight for them too. Unfortunately, that's not really the climate we're in right now, so there's not a whole lot to be done there. Um, but, um, you know, that is what we are, that was what we were created to do and what we will continue to do for the next 50 years. We're coming up on our 50 year anniversary pretty soon. Um, and so we are, you know, happy to join hands with elected officials who will advance reproductive freedom. You know, and that includes a lot of Democrats. We wish it included a lot of Republicans. Um, but until it, uh, you know, until some things change at the top, frankly, in the Republican Party, um, you know, we'll be we'll be fighting and then continuing our, our work um, the way that we have been for the better part of the last decade. So as you mentioned, nominees like John Bush aren't just anti-reproductive freedom. They're also anti-LGBTQ. And something a lot of folks don't realize is how these two things intersect. We hear conversations centered largely on cisgender women without recognition that the transgender and non-binary community also needs access to these services. What are you doing to include and engage LGBTQ folks who need reproductive health services? You know, for, for me, you know, I always think of these issues as, uh, as issues of human rights and bodily autonomy. Um, you know, this is why so often we end up having similar conversations with our allies in the anti-sexual assault community. Um, this is really so much about making sure that people have access to the services that will allow them to like, chart their own destinies, live their own lives, be in control of their own bodies. And we are so proud to stand with them, with the LGBT community as well. And I think that so many of these issues truly are intersectional. And I you know, I know that word is just thrown around so much these days, but um, but what we're talking about is real fundamental understanding of equality as well. Because of course, you know, women have no ability to be equal partners in society unless they have access to reproductive health care, which allows them to finish school, have a job, you know, without worrying about taking care of a family if that's not the right time for them. All of these values just are so linked with the values of the LGBT community and the trans community, and that's why we're really proud to stand alongside them in, in, uh, in support of these really critical values for all of us. So expanding on intersectionality, the reproductive rights movement and the American feminist movement has a very racist, ableist, classist history in which, quote unquote, undesirable groups have been targeted for sterilization, particularly low-income people of color and disabled women. To this day, the movement is largely centered around able-bodied cisgender white women with marginalized bodies disproportionately having their choices limited, despite disproportionately needing access to reproductive health services. What do you do to confront this history and help center those folks who have struggled to find a place in the movement despite so desperately needing these services? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I think that, you know, there is always work to be done to be better and better. Um, you know, as I said before, you know, I think that a recognition of sort of the core values that all of us share when it comes to, you know, equality, um, that is something that, you know, we are really, really committed to as an organization and especially, you know, through our different outreach and our partnership with other progressive organizations as well. I think that there is always a lot to do. And I think that especially in 2017, a lot of these conversations have been brought to the forefront in ways that they hadn't been before wrongfully. Um, and so we're, you know, we're excited to see what is to come in 2018 around these same conversations and the 
recognizing the different types of investments that we can make with time and money into different communities and initiatives uh, to make sure that we are fighting for everyone who needs you know, reproductive health care, who is truly invested in reproductive freedom and benefits from that you know, as it relates to gender equality. In terms of 2018, what specifically are you looking for candidates to sign off on? What specific policies are you wanting them to support and enact when they're in office? In 2018, like in other election years, um, you know, we are looking for people who will advance reproductive freedom. And that means so many things. And I think, you know, I, I've been talking to you a lot about reproductive freedom, but haven't actually explained to us what that means and sort of the way that we think about it at NARAL. But, you know, we think of it as, you know, the freedom to the freedom to decide what you would like to do with your own body and life. And what that means to me, especially, is the, the different stages of a, of a woman's reproductive life and what sort of decisions will that woman confront when she faces them. So, for example, you know, if you are not pregnant and you don't want to be, does that mean access for birth control? Absolutely, yes. If you are pregnant and you don't want to be, that means access to abortion care. Um, if you are a mother trying to take care of a family that you are about to have, that means access to paid family leave. And then, of course, working against pregnancy discrimination in the workplace. So, you know, we want to make sure that we are putting our weight at NARAL behind candidates who advance, especially those four pillars, um, and candidates who have a real recognition of the role that reproductive freedom plays in gender equality and especially economic mobility, quite frankly. So that is something that we are, you know, we look at with all the candidates that we endorse and put our support behind. You know, that's the way that we've looked at folks for years. Um, but, you know, I think that this last year has been so tough on so many communities that I, I think that we are seeing some really amazing candidates, new candidates. I mean, you probably have spoken with folks from Emily's List, for example, who have seen you know, tens of thousands of new candidates signing up as pro-choice women who want to run for office. You know, making sure that we're, we're choosing candidates to put our weight behind who are really going to advance those values for their constituents. So going a bit into language, you refer to people who tend to describe themselves as pro-life instead as anti-choice. Could you explain why it's important to use this language? Yeah. So this is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately as it relates to the CHIP program. And so for those listening who may not be familiar with the CHIP program, the, the CHIP program is essentially uh, one of the nation's health insurance plans for vulnerable, low-income children. This is a program that you know has kind of been a no-brainer for Congress, has gotten support for years, yet funding expired for this really critical program that keeps kids healthy back in September. We're waiting for it to be reauthorized under Mitch McConnell. It hasn't happened yet. Quite frankly, the longer this goes, there will be states that will run out of money to be able to provide kids with health insurance, sick kids with health insurance. And so when you think about the people who are not pushing for the CHIP program to be reauthorized, the same elected officials who chose to vote for a tax break, a massive tax break for corporations before reauthorizing the CHIP program, that doesn't feel like a candidate who truly puts the lives of their constituents and especially the neediest among them first, which is why the label of pro-life just is so problematic. If you were truly pro-life, you would have you know, elected officials holding up the Senate and doing nothing but making sure that poor, sick children 
had health insurance, but that's not happening. What they're really about is taking options away and, and from women and, and taking options and choices away from women that are so critical for them to choose what they want their life to look like. You know, how will they chart their own destinies? We know, you know, just given the hypocrisy of this so-called pro-life movement, that it really isn't about, you know, advancing, you know, and, and creating the best lives for their constituents. It's really about, you know, holding women back and hold, and making sure that, you know, we are never fully equal partners in society. And so that's, you know, that is a reason why we call them anti-choice, because that just describes them so much better, given how familiar we are with their goals. So you've talked a lot about how these policies affect poorer women. Could you explain a little bit more about how class intersects with reproductive freedom? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot when I get this question um, is the Hyde Amendment. For folks who don't know what that is, that is the amendment that prevents any government funding to go toward abortion care. What that has the impact of doing is preventing, you know, women, for example, on Medic who who use the Medicaid program for their health insurance from being able to access abortion care, you know, having to pay out of pocket for the abortion that she chooses to have. That's discrimination. That basically, you know, primarily puts so many women of color in a position where they are unable to access this really critical component of reproductive health care. Um, and so that is one area where, you know, class absolutely intersects. And that is something that the, you know, the Republican Party has been supportive of the Hyde Amendment for decades. The Democratic Party has gotten a lot better on this. And in fact, it's part of their platform now and was a part of Hillary Clinton's campaign platform as well when she was running for president and, and a repeal of the Hyde Amendment, that is. And um, repeal of the Hyde Amendment is also a major part of Senator Sanders' Medicare for All bill, and which is just such welcome news and a, a really great outcome of otherwise a terrible year uh, for Democrats last year, quite frankly. But just the, the, the strides that have been made there for repeal of the Hyde Amendment politically have been really impressive. And, you know, we have to hand it to our partners like All Above All and women of color-led organizations who have pushed this and really taken the leadership role on this for years. Um, and we're so proud to follow their lead. And, you know, and we just give them so many kudos and thank them tremendously for shining a light on this issue and quite frankly, bringing you know, a lot of us with them. So how can folks get involved? Oh my goodness, how much time do they have? <laughs> um, there is a lot that people can do to get involved. It's something as simple as putting something on Facebook, educating your friends, sharing an article, all the way to knocking on doors, you know, joining NARAL for a canvas around a neighborhood to educate constituents about, you know, a certain person's record or a bill that's coming up. You know, there's also a fellow program, actually, that we have that's new here. If you'd like to sign up to become a fellow with NARAL Pro-Choice America, I think of those fellows as, you know, our, our super duper volunteers, if you will. They are dedicating their time, their effort, you know, to really advance reproductive freedom in their own communities and take a leadership role that is just so above and beyond. So you can find information on how to get involved and, you know, whether it be from the simple tweet to signing up to be a fellow on our website, which is prochoiceamerica.org. That is where you will find all the different opportunities which exist in all corners of the country. And we would love to have you be a part of our organization and our, our family that's fighting for reproductive freedom. And lastly, where can folks find you online? I am on Twitter. So you can find me at Kaylee E. Hansen 
on Twitter. I am there often. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and telling us about the work you do. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, of course. Again, I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter and Medium at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.